Between 1978 and 1965, university professors, computer store owners, airlines, and other companies became concerned where they saw reports that someone may have been targeting them for attacks. A package would arrive at an office or their home, or there would be an abandoned box on the ground in front of an office. When the unsuspecting victim opened the box, there would be a flash of light and a deafening explosion. The investigation spanned the entire country and even took on international implications. When it finally ended, three people were dead and 23 were injured, and the FBI had spent over $50 million. The mysterious bomber, as had so many serial killers in American history, became a celebrity in his own right, even acquiring a name and a persona from the authorities. When he was finally caught, it wasn't because of extraordinary police work. It was because he was turned in by his own brother. His motive was different, however, from other mass murderers. He wasn't trying to satisfy his own lust or his own perversions. He was in a twisted way, trying to bring about a change in society, a revolution. And to this day, people wonder, who was, who is, Ted Kaczynski? So sit back, mix yourself a B-52, and ask yourself, who is the Unabomber? Theodore Kaczynski was born in Chicago in 1942. His father was Theodore Richard, or Turk, Kaczynski. His mother's name was Wanda. They were working Polish Americans who were raised Catholic, but later became atheists. They also saw themselves as liberals, dedicated to the cause of racial equality. In 1952, they moved to the integrated suburb of Evergreen Park, Illinois. As a youngster, Ted Kaczynski was viewed as very intelligent and empathetic. He didn't torture animals or start fires or become a petty criminal. He wasn't a voyeur, nor did he have any history of sexual perversions. He was just a very introverted and a very intelligent child. In fifth grade, he scored 167 on an IQ test. The principal wanted him to skip sixth grade. Some of Turk Kaczynski's friends and relatives urged him not to let his son do that. They felt that even though he was obviously very intelligent, they didn't think that his social development was at a point where he should be placed with older children. Turk wouldn't hear of it. His son was a genius and deserved intellectual stimulation. He saw great things in Ted's future. As Ted continued through junior high and into high school, he had some trouble adjusting socially because he was smaller for his age, and because of his obvious intelligence, he became a target for bullies. Eventually, though, he found his niche. He played trombone in the marching band, and he joined the Mathematics Club, the German Club, the Biology Club, and the Coin Clubs. 
He and his friends soon acquired a nickname around high school. They were known as the Briefcase Boys because they carried briefcases to class. That couldn't have helped with the bullying. Ted excelled in math. He was a national merit finalist. Once again, school officials encouraged Turk to let his son skip a grade. We've taught him all we can here. He belongs in college, they said. And again, his relatives urged Turk to say no, but he wouldn't hear of it. He wouldn't deny Ted this opportunity. Some people who knew Turk back then said that he was living vicariously through his son and that the fact that he was graduating from high school so young was as much an ego trip for Turk as it was an accomplishment for Ted. So, at his father's assistance, Ted took summer school courses and graduated from high school at age 15. He was offered a scholarship and enrolled in Harvard just after his 16th birthday. Emotionally, he wasn't ready. His freshman year, he lived in a house with other very young early acceptees. The college tried to ease their transition to college life. But while he was still an introvert, people who knew him in those days dispute the fact that he was a loner. He did have a circle of acquaintances, if not close friends. And while he did spend a lot of time in the library... People recall late-night bull sessions where he would join in lively debates about philosophy and current events. Ted Kaczynski found himself in the middle of an academic war at Harvard. Incoming freshmen were required to take general education courses. Officially, these courses were intended to immerse the impressionable young students in the traditional Judeo-Christian mores of American culture. In fact, though, most of the professors, while paying lip service to this, taught that those values were at best a reflection of an older society, at worst, simple superstitions. What was important, they said, was that students have an appreciation of the scientific method that would lead to progress and the betterment of all society. Undoubtedly, Ted read widely on both sides of this debate. And whether it was then or later, he did choose a side. Ted also participated in a project that may have had a formative effect on his life. It was a study led by Henry Murray, who during World War II had worked with national security agencies and later during the Cold War worked with the government to develop defenses to brainwashing techniques for prisoners of war. In this study, the young students would begin by debating various ideas. They would write papers. And at some point, an interrogator would enter the room and began to berate the students in a degrading, almost vicious manner, picking up any inconsistencies in their arguments. They would insult them. They would question their intelligence. The subjects had electrodes attached to their heads to monitor their brain responses and their anger and their emotions. Kaczynski spent over 200 hours with Murray and his team over his Harvard years. He later said that he didn't like the study and he hated Henry Murray, but he denied that it contributed to his later activities. In 1962, Ted graduated from Harvard with a degree in mathematics. He enrolled at the University of Michigan and earned his master's and doctorate degrees. 
His dissertation earned a prize for the best dissertation of the year. His advisor said that he was one of the best students he ever had, and another member of his doctoral committee said that he was brilliant and a leader in his field. Speaking of his dissertation, this academic said, there were probably only 10 or 12 people in the country who really understood it. But something happened in 1966. He began having intense sexual fantasies about being a woman. He even scheduled an appointment with a psychiatrist to discuss gender transition surgery, but walked out of the waiting room before he was seen. He was disgusted with himself. For the first time, he began to harbor fantasies of killing people who had wronged him, starting with the psychiatrist that he hadn't even seen. It was, he said later, a major turning point in his life. I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to, and I felt humiliated, and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then, there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. He moved to California and became an assistant professor of mathematics at the University of California, Berkeley. He was on the tenure track. And then suddenly, three years later, without warning, he resigned. He returned to his parents' home in Illinois so he could save money. And in 1971, he bought a cabin near Lincoln, Montana. The cabin was in the wilderness. It didn't have running water or electricity. He used an old bike to get around town. His goal was to be self-sufficient, to live off the grid, as we would say today, to be autonomous. People around town remember him pedaling around on an old bicycle. He spent a lot of time in the library reading old texts in their original languages. He was particularly immersed in the writing of the French philosopher Jacques Ellul. His book, The Technological Society, became almost a Bible to Ted, according to his brother David. Ted later said, When I read that book for the first time, I was delighted because I thought, here's someone who is saying what I've already been thinking. He was becoming more and more upset as technology seemed to encroach upon the natural world. He remembered one time taking a hike from his cabin. He used to enjoy looking at the beautiful scenery. But one day as he stood on a hill, he looked down and saw tourists encroaching upon his preserve. He saw the cars. He heard the noise. It enraged him. He finally decided he had to act. Modern technology was destroying his world. He sent his first mail bomb to an engineering professor at Northwestern University in Chicago. When the professor opened the package, he only suffered minor injuries. A year later, he sent a second bomb to Northwestern, where it was opened by a student who again only suffered minor injuries. Later that year, Kaczynski placed a bomb in luggage on an American Airlines flight from Chicago to Washington. The bomb didn't explode, but released smoke which caused an emergency landing. If it had exploded, it would have destroyed the plane in midair, killing everyone. This got the FBI's attention. Kaczynski sent clues 
that were designed to throw investigators off his track. He stamped the initials FC on some of the bombs. No one really knows what it stood for. He sent notes with others, referring to himself as we, not I. He sent quotes from books, along with some of the bombs as well. And throughout the 1980s, he sent more of these packages to universities in Utah and California. He left a bomb in the parking lot of a computer store in Sacramento. When the owner came out and opened the package, it exploded, killing him. He sent another bomb near a computer store in Salt Lake City, which severely injured a person there. This time, though, he was spotted. People saw him wearing a hood and aviator sunglasses as he dropped the package that was disguised as a piece of lumber. Because he attacked universities and airlines, the FBI began calling him the Unabomber. They profiled him as probably living in Chicago or Utah. They said he may have been an academic or an engineer, or since he had targeted airlines, perhaps even a blue-collar airline mechanic. They offered a $1 million reward for a clue leading to his capture. In 1995, he sent several letters to media outlets, stating that if they published a 35,000-word essay that he had written titled Industrial Society and Its Future, he would desist from terrorism. Authorities debated whether or not to allow its publication, but finally, the Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno, and the FBI Director, Louis Free, decided that it would be better to publish it than not. It might save some lives, and also, someone might read it and recognize the writing and be able to identify its author. Penthouse Magazine offered to publish it, but Kaczynski said that he wanted it published in a more respectable publication, such as the New York Times or the Washington Post. He sent a letter saying that if Penthouse published it, he'd plant another bomb and kill more people. They got the message. On September 19, 1995, Ted Kaczynski's opus, Industrial Society and Its Future, was published in the Washington Post. It began, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. He said that technology had robbed humanity of its dignity, and he called for a return to a more primitive lifestyle. He also derided left-wing politics and attributed many of society's ills to socialists and politically correct types. But he didn't leave the conservatives out either. He characterized them as fools who whine about the decay of traditional values yet enthusiastically support technological progress and unlimited economic growth. Ted's brother David's wife had long felt that perhaps Ted was involved. When the manifesto was published, she insisted that David read it. He did just to prove her wrong, but as he read it, the more he became more and more convinced that this was his brother's writings. Following the publication, he went back to the family home and searched through some of Ted's old papers, and he discovered very similar writings of Ted's dating all the way back to the 1970s. This convinced him that his brother was, in fact, the Unabomber. He wanted to remain anonymous, so he hired an attorney who would contact the FBI and let them know of his suspicion. 
Based on this report from the attorney, the FBI obtained a search warrant for Ted's cabin. But someone, we still don't know who, had leaked that David was, in fact, the informant. They leaked Ted's name. So the FBI rushed to a court and got a search warrant, went to Montana, and searched the cabin. When they searched it, they found one live bomb ready for mailing. They found bomb-making equipment, and they also found the original typed manifesto. They arrested Ted Kaczynski. The longest and most expensive FBI investigation in American history had come to an end. It involved thousands of agents and cost over $50 million. Ted's attorney wanted him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but Ted refused. He wanted his defense to be based upon his philosophy. He was examined by psychiatrists. He was buried. Some diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, but ultimately the judge refused his request to represent himself or to have his attorney replaced. He found him competent to stand trial. United States authorities sought the death penalty. In order to avoid that, Ted finally agreed to plead guilty to 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs. He was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Kaczynski is alive today, serving his sentence at a maximum security prison in Colorado. He continues to correspond with people and has never expressed remorse for his views. While in prison, he befriended two other bombers, Ramzi Youssef, one of the World Trade Center bombers, and Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. The three of them would frequently meet and discuss religion and philosophy and remain friends until Timothy McVeigh's execution. The author of the Unabomber Manifesto continues to write. From his prison cell, he has published three books in the last 10 years. To some, he is a heartless murderer. To others, he is a prophet, and if not a hero, then at least someone whose views should be taken seriously and who should be listened to. What do you think? Thanks, Dad. This is an interesting one because Ted doesn't have the normal, that's the wrong word, Ted doesn't have the usual background of serial killers that we normally cover. So, But we will get into that in a moment. But first, we have our Trends of the Crime section, and this is the part of our show where I tell you about fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime or fashion that has to do with the crime that we're covering in one way or another. Today, I decided to cover the Ivy look since Ted attended Harvard, which is part of the Ivy League. And there were quite a few, well, maybe not quite a few, but there were some Ivy Leagues targeted with Ted's bombs. So have you heard of the Ivy look before? Well, I don't know if I've ever heard it described that way, but, you know, I've seen enough old movies that, uh-huh. you know, I'm familiar with what the snobbish Ivy Leaguers were wearing. Yes. It's not the preppy style. No. It's its own thing. So tell us about it. The Ivy look was a style of men's dress popular during the 1950s in the Northeastern U.S. 
It's said to have originated on college campuses, particularly those in the Ivy League. It was the predecessor to the preppy style. In the summertime, some typical attire for this look was a two-button navy blazer with gold buttons, striped college blazers, ascot ties, cable-knit tank tops, cute, Oxford shirts. Do you know that word? Breton striped shirts? Mm -mm. Must be a brand. Wingtip shoes. For the fall, you had trendsetters such as the Prince of Wales combine the latest American fashions with traditional British country clothing, such as, oh gosh, brogue, brogue, brogue boots, argyle socks and jumpers, and tweed cloth sport coats, Irish walking hats, and plus fours and houndstooth herringbone or the Prince of Wales check popularized by Edward VII. Now, would this be where people were... People would wear like a tweed sports coat with a leather elbow patch. I believe so. I see. I have one of those still, you know. Ooh. And I never went to the Ivy League. Look at you. People think you did, I'm sure, when you (laughs) wear that. The clothing stores J. Press and Brooks Brothers represented perhaps the quintessential Ivy League dress manner, the former with two of its four locations found at Harvard and Yale Universities. I've heard of Brooks Brothers, but not J Press. How about you? Mm-mm. No, there. I've been in Brooks Brothers stores. There, mm-hmm. there used everywhere, to be no? one here, at least in Kansas City. Maybe there still is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The sack suit was another big part of the Ivy look. Do you know what the sack suit Mm-mm. is? It is a three to two, which means three buttons with the top button rolled back to reveal only two usable buttons. Jacket without darts and a single hooked vent. The pants were typically cuffed and without pleats. It was also characterized by the use of natural fabrics, shirts with button-down collars, and penny loafers. As far as hairstyles, people sporting the ivy look would have a crew cut, Harvard clip, or a regular haircut. Hmm. Whatever that means. (laughs) That's the ivy look. I just wonder what a Harvard clip is. Let's see. Let's take a look at the Harvard clip. Maybe I should get one. Wait, wait a I minute. Don't know I don't have can. any hair. Yeah, I don't think that's possible. Brad Pitt wears this. It's also called an Ivy League. Oh, I see. Yes. No, Zac I, Efron, pretty boy haircut. Yes, it's pretty boy haircut. <laughs> I, I would not be able to do this. Definitely not. But every sexy man in Hollywood sure does. Mm-hmm. So all of them. Mm-hmm. Even my love, uh, Chris Hemsworth, a.k.a. Thor. Okay, so what were the uh, what were the well dressed uh, women who were, of course, at that point probably not allowed in Ivy League schools, Correct. but they would have been at the Seven Sisters, mm-hmm. places like Wellesley and Vassar. What were they wearing back then? I don't know, Dad. I didn't look because they weren't part of the Ivy look. But let's see, what do you call it? Seven Sisters. I think it's called the Seven Sisters. So it would have been schools like Wellesley and mm-hmm. Vassar. Were they not wearing uniforms? I doubt it in college, no. Let's see. Oh, there's a book. Seven Sisters Style. Let's see. There's a lot of words and no pictures. I see. Oh, well. (laughs) Well, it looks like long linen shorts, short sleeve linen button downs, flat shoes, 
it was the 30s. So think casual 30s. I know we've talked about the 30s before. Mm-hmm. So this is when women really started wearing pants and shorts and things like that. So yeah. modest, but for the time, not super modest. Cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm seeing a picture here of some. And like you said, those kind of knee length shorts and bobby socks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. Maybe we'll find an Ivy League lady from more future times and we can cover that. Tell us about the cocktail this week, Dad. Well, he's the Unabomber. So I thought, well, something having to do with bombs would be good. But, you know, a typical bomber shot is where you take a liquor and then put a little smaller shot glass full of beer in it. And I thought, well, that's not really something I want to do. So I just... I just searched for cocktails with bombs in the name, and I found the B-52. B-52, of course, was a bomber used during World War II, and um, seems like an interesting cocktail. It's going to, uh, first you pour um, you pour an ounce or so of Kahlua in a shot glass, and then take Bailey's uh, Irish Cream, pour that over the top of a spoon so it doesn't mix in with the Kahlua, and then top it off uh, with some Cointreau. So it's like one of those three-layered drinks, and um, you shoot it back. Nice. Now, if you really wanted to get fancy, you could make a flaming B-52. Ooh. Same ingredients, except you pour just a little bit of uh, high-proof rum on the top, get a match, and light it. And then we've got a flaming B-52. So that's the cocktail for today. Just something to go along with the theme of bombs. Please be careful if you try a flaming B-52. Yeah, you're going to stand right there and watch me. I know if I did that, I would burn the house down. <laughs> so just know know your strengths, you know, if you try the flaming one at home. All right. Something I find very interesting about Ted is that he is so smart. And I know a lot of serial killers are, but he, I don't know. I think because he went to Harvard and got his doctoral degree, pretty unique, I I feel. Mm-hmm. As a dad, I want to know how you feel about Turk encouraging Ted to skip all these grades. and. I think whoever that person was that said he thought it was an ego trip was right. Mm-hmm. Um. My impression of Turk is he was a guy who was probably considered himself very smart and thought about the life he could have had if he hadn't had to take a regular job and just support a family. I almost think he may have just been living vicariously through his son. Stage dad. Yes, that, uh, you know, I should have been able to do this, but I can't, so I'm going to push my son. He'll be the thing that I always wanted to be, but circumstances just never allowed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be so, I, I think he pushed his son in a in a way that uh, wasn't to his benefit. I mean, I you know it, it, he was obviously the kid had an IQ of 167. He could have uh, he could have gone through two more grades of school and and still had his scholarship and probably still ended up at Harvard as an 18 year old instead of a 16 year old. Mm-hmm. That was. Uh, that had to have been very difficult for him, being an introvert anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know who I think of when I think of uh, 
Sheldon? Yes. Yes. Me Sheldon too. Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory. I'm uh-huh. reading this and I'm thinking, you know, maybe someday uh they'll do a sequel to the Big Bang Theory and we'll see Sheldon in a federal penitentiary somewhere. Mhm. Yes, it's it's interesting because I feel like as a parent, I mean, I'm not a parent, but you want the best for your child and I'm sure it's exciting. Dad knows this. I'm sure it's very exciting when you realize your <laughs> child is a genius. But <laughs> I know when I when I first got Allie's IQ Shut results up. back and saw she was like a 185, I thought, <laughs> my goodness. But then I came down to earth when I got your results. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm sure it's very exciting yes. to have if you have a child that is a literal genius, but then you have to remember what that child will go through mm-hmm. if they're 16 and in college yeah, or even 12 with 14 year olds. Right. Like that would suck. Right. And, and in addition, coming from a working class neighborhood in Chicago, going to Harvard where oh, I, I don't, I'm going to assume a great many of the students who were there uh, were, were from um, Northeast prep schools came from very wealthy families. So, you know, aside from just his age and and his intellect, just the cultural shock of going from a working class neighborhood to someplace like that. Uh, they probably made fun of him for the clothes he wore and uh, his accent. So it, it had to be a very, very difficult time for him. Did the experiment that he was a part of, did that happen before the psychiatrist situation. Yeah, that would have been uh, while he was at Harvard. I think. Right. And okay. He went to Harvard in what fifty nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was just a weird thing. I'd li- I didn't have a chance to do a lot of research on that, but the records from from that experiment to this day remain closed. They use they used um, code names for the people who were part of it. Um, and there, a lot of people believe this was actually government-funded research. That For they the, were, what's that big thing called? MK Ultra? Or, that's a drink. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking I about. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. But something like that, where uh-huh. they were, where the government had contracted with with this guy to uh, try to find ways to com- either brainwash prisoners of war that we captured or to find ways to uh, defend brainwashing techniques should any of our people be captured. So they were just subjecting these people, these uh, people in the study to, it sounded like just horrible uh, persecution, Mm -hmm. short of, basically short of anything physical, but just the psychological abuse. And then to go through that for an hour or two or whatever, and then, okay, well, we're done for the day. I don't see how anybody could just slough that off. Yeah, I've particularly a- someone like Ted Kaczynski, who was really too young to be there anyway, and and had some issues with self confidence. Man, yeah, the whoever came up with that study, I think, has some things to answer for, but mm-hmm. never will. And I have a hard time believing that didn't affect him, his future. Oh, of like course. he says, it had to have. Right. I mean, I wouldn't last two seconds. With someone insulting me. I can't handle that. <laughs> I need everyone to tell me how awesome I am all the time, not the other way around. Yeah, that's crazy to me. And I guess to me that had to have affected him because 
I don't see how you're fine and dandy and then one day you want to kill a psychiatrist that you didn't even meet. Yeah. Because of something inside of yourself. Yeah. That you shouldn't even be ashamed of, but it makes mm-hmm. you so mad you want to kill someone, mm-hmm. you know. There has to be a bridge there, but we'll never really know, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that also makes me wonder if now we have laws against uh certain research studies and how researchers can ethically ethically do their study. That'd be something interesting to read about, but Yeah, I I'm going to I'm going to guess that there aren't. But didn't something come out of the Stanford prison experiment? I'm not familiar with that one. That's the one where they had the 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 men at Stanford, you know, college-aged men. Half of them were guards, half of them were prisoners, and then it got really out of hand because the guards started hurting the prisoners physically and being really awful to them. You haven't heard of that? No, I haven't. Oh, wow. We'll have uh, to cover that one sometime. Okay. I'm sure something came out of that. I'll have to. I watched a movie about it. I can't remember, but. Anyway, we'll cover that sometime. Evidently, this Murray also came up with the assessment uh, with the assessment tests for people who were being recruited to join the OSS, which was the wartime equivalent of today's CIA. So he had a lot of experience working in in the government in the intelligence gathering information. So I've got to believe this was somehow uh, connected to an off the books government program. The, uh, the experiment. experiments, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. If anyone knows more about any of this, let us yeah. know. So the all of his victims, I understand how he chose the overarching theme mm-hmm. of the computer stores, mm-hmm. the universities, and like airline because technology. But I wonder how he chose the specific people to mail the bombs to and the specific computer stores was just randomly picking. I don't know. What do you think? Well, he didn't know any of the victims, so he didn't have any prior relationships. But uh, like the first one, um, this guy was was a professor of mechanical engineering, I think, at Northwestern. And he had written some articles and some books. So Kaczynski had probably read that. Mm-hmm. And I assume that's why he picked him. Um, probably the same with most of the other academics where he sent something, either knew of the person or knew of the school. Um, the computer stores, I'm guessing he just picked found some place. Yeah, found a computer store and sent a bomb, mm-hmm. placed a bomb out in front of it. Um, yeah, so again, not not a... Not any, uh, not a lot of long-term planning in this thing. He wanted to create havoc. He wanted to create terror, mm-hmm. and we're we're really lucky. I think the the whole country's lucky that he didn't. He he only he 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 set off a lot of bombs. Yes, but could have been a lot worse. I mean, he could have been sending these things out once a week instead of once every four or five months. So, um, yeah, he was different kind of guy. It makes me feel like sometimes I feel like people who live off the grid have too much time to think about things mm-hmm. <laughs> and it can be kind of scary because I don't know if if you have a tendency like we all do to I I feel I believe we all have a tendency to 
be depressed and have anxiety. And if you have nothing else to do, but mm-hmm. think about things on your mind that make you sad or make you anxious, mm-hmm. then you can justify in your mind like he did that what he's doing is totally fine. I'm yeah. saving the world. Right. And and when you're isolated as well, you don't have anybody to bounce these ideas off or to mm-hmm. talk to about it. And I think it just builds and builds and builds. Um, you know, you, you wonder if he would have done this had he remained uh, a professor or at least, you know, had a, had a network of friends that he could have talked about. But he just made up his mind that he wanted to change the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought the, as he called it, the techno-industrial system was uh, was going to be the downfall of civilization. And he said, we've got to do away with it. And to do away with it, you got to kill people. Hmm. And he made that choice. Um, mm-hmm. While he was um, not right in killing people or hurting people or sending bombs and terrorizing people. Mm-hmm. His views on the dangers of technology are very interesting. And, you know, we do face a lot of that still Mm -hmm. with data breaches and social Mm -hmm. media. And, you know, social media is a big part of my career and Mm my, was my master's degree. And, and I'm hoping to study it further in a doctoral program. So, this case interested me in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so recently, as as most of us know, Facebook was uh, under trial for mm-hmm. um, causing, you know, not being able to police anti-vaccine misinformation and mm-hmm. things like that, dangers to self-esteem, and showing thing showing things to people that they knew would make them upset. Mm-hmm. Instead of making Facebook a safe place, they're essentially making it a dangerous place mm-hmm. and making people upset. Yeah. And it's very scary that people in California or wherever Facebook is have that power mm-hmm. to make us all mad. <laughs> and yeah. like, and even with the 2016 presidential election, Cambridge, Analy- Cambridge Analytica worked with Facebook just to make Hillary Clinton look horribly bad. For not mm-hmm. a legitimate reason. Yeah. Because they were paid by Trump. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. Uh, you know, it, it is hard to balance all that with freedom of expression and freedom of speech. But uh, I, yeah. It's That's a, it's not a really tough one. freedom if Facebook is showing me something that's going to make me mad that I have no control over seeing it. Well, then what would you say to someone who said, well, then just don't look at Facebook? I would say Facebook wasn't started to make me mad. It was started to connect me with people all over the world. Mm-hmm. And it's when it began, it was a really cool thing and a really good thing. And it turned bad really quickly. Well, I think people people recognize, hey, this is a platform. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to uh, I don't have to take the time to sit down and write a thoughtful letter to the editor of a local newspaper to get my opinion out. All I've got to do is pull out my phone and write 140 characters and call people names and spread lies. And I can do it with, uh, with no accountability. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean that social media, Twitter, Facebook, it's, uh, it has done some good, but it's also enabled a lot of people to have a platform they wouldn't normally have mm-hmm. because it's too easy anymore. Right. Yeah. 
Um, It'll be interesting to see, you know, as time goes on, what kinds of laws come out for social media because it is so new and Mm under-researched at this time. Mm -hmm. Just what kind of stuff comes out and procedures and policies and things. You know, something I've I've been uh, a little bit surprised at both last week with Son of Sam and this week with the Unabomber. Um, to this day, David Berkowitz is not allowed to have a computer. He's not allowed to look at the Internet. But uh, Ted Kaczynski, on the other hand, evidently is very active on the Internet and on social media. Um He's well aware of the news, and he is lending his support to people who are doing things to further his agenda. Uh, up in Eugene, Oregon, for example, where they're having, they've been having riots for, for quite some time, um, the leader of that, some guy named John Zerzan, and um, Kaczynski has uh, written him several times, and uh, when they were when they were rioting in Eugene and smashing computers and breaking shop windows and throwing bricks at cars. Um, Kaczynski was sending messages from his jail cell uh, approving of, of what they're doing. Um, when they were uh, burning the ski resort at Vail, there were environmental activists burning the ski resort at Vail. Um, he was commenting to he wrote a letter to a Denver television reporter commending them for their actions. So he wrote, I fully approve of the arson and I congratulate the people who carried it out. Um and uh so he's he's actually becoming kind of a hero and a leader to some of the more radical elements of uh of society right now. Mm-hmm. He sounds kind of like someone else we know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, why is David Berkowitz not allowed to ha- be on the internet? I don't know. That's why I said I'm. 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 I wonder what the difference is. Uh, you think it's because Ted Kaczynski is a scholar and probably, and uh, yeah, I guess is like higher afraid? class, like sort of a classism sort of situation. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Because he's part of the Ivy League. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, uh, I don't know. His manifesto is interesting because you, I don't want to say, oh, he had great points and blah, blah, blah. But some of what he said, you know, is happening and it's scary. It is. And, and I mean, he didn't just come up with this, with these ideas on his own one day. I mean, this is a, this is a, um, Long time philosophy of of people who have uh, who have argued that technology is is really harming the world and are saying we've got to get back to an agrarian society. We've got to get away from uh, collectivism. It should just be everybody on their own living the living your life and you know not having technology rob us of our humanity. So this isn't something he just came up with. I mean this is this has been around forever. Uh, fortunately, most people don't go around sending bombs right. uh, to strangers to try to do away with this. Yeah, he's a, he's an interesting and, and uh, scary individual. Mm-hmm. Um, he, is, he is, in a sense, proud of what he's done. Yep, seems like it. <laughs> he wishes more people would, would pick up his mantle, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about David because 
I feel like it's also very unusual that a family member turns in the person. Yeah. Uh, and I, I commend David for having the courage to turn in his brother because mm-hmm. a lot more people could have died or been hurt. I mean, we see it all the time. Serial killers, what they're doing isn't big enough for them. Like they become immune to what they're doing and then they go even bigger and kill even more people. So I think David saved a lot of lives and um, I don't know it's pretty, pretty unusual that a brother turns into brother. Yeah. So, especially because it's not like they didn't get along necessarily. They were just brothers. And mm-hmm. yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it took a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also got a million bucks. <laughs> that too. Did he know he was going to get a million? Oh, dollars? yeah. Oh, well, okay. I mean, there was a reward. I know. Oh, okay. I don't think that was his motivation. Right. I think his motivation was, you know, people are dying here and I know who's doing it and I've got to tell. I mean, he didn't want to be known. Yeah. He wanted to be a confidential informant, but somebody in the FBI leaked it. What a butt. We don't know. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. He, he has since said that it was very painful to report his brother, but he felt morally compelled to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot more cases would be solved if there were more people who had the same courage. Because yeah. uh, I think family knows you pretty well, and mm-hmm. it's hard to believe that no one knows certain killers. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, we're looking at the Gabby Petito, mm, Petito, right? Petito yeah. case right now where we've got some family members who are just, they've lawyered up and they're keeping their mouth shut. Who knows why, but. I hope I'm never in that situation, but it's hard for me to think that I would, I don't know, mm. be okay covering for someone who murdered someone. And it came out that Gabby was strangled. So, I mean, it's pretty clear what happened at this point. So, uh, anyway. Well. Props to David. Yes. Well, maybe we should give uh, Ted Kaczynski himself the last word. Ooh. Uh, He wrote a letter to a fellow academic who had done the same thing that he did. Just Mm. left academia, went and bought some land in Montana lived off the grid. He's been corresponding with him. His name is Alston Chase. And he wrote an article for the Atlantic magazine called Harvard and the making of the Unabomber. He has been corresponding with Kaczynski for quite some time. And Kaczynski wrote a letter to him back in 1998. I suspect that you underestimate the strength and depth of feeling against industrial civilization that has been developing in recent years. I've been surprised at some of the things people have written to me. It looks to me as if our society is moving into a pre-revolutionary situation. By that, I don't mean a situation in which revolution is inevitable, but one in which it is a realistic possibility. The majority of people are pessimistic or cynical about existing institutions. There is widespread alienation and directionless among young people. Perhaps all that is needed is to give these forces appropriate organization and direction. So, what do we have for next week? Next week? Ooh, I don't know anything about this one. Patty Hearst. You honestly don't know anything about Patty Hearst? Not based on the name. 
Oh, this will be fun. You'll enjoy this one. (laughs) Good. I'm excited. It's a rich girl gone bad. Oh, yes. Party. All right. We'll see you guys next week for Patty Hearst. Go Go Chiefs! This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. <laughs>